you have a Bible, let me encourage you to join me in Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter number 20. Exodus chapter number 20. Uh, on October 12th, 1996, so today's October 1st, so in just a couple of days, uh, October 12th, 1996, these two kids got married. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this will be 27 years, right? Is that correct? 27 years? Yeah. Um, crazy when I look at this picture, but... Uh, I, um, I fell for Jamie during the end of my ninth grade year. Uh, she was in eighth grade. I don't know if it was the poofy bangs, you know, uh, you know, that was, or if it was the striped denim jumper that she was wearing. I'm not sure which of those two 80s and 90s, uh, you know, things were, uh, were what uh, drew, drew me to her, but I, I knew I was smitten. We, uh, we dated for six years until we got married. And I, I think it was on our fifth wedding anniversary uh, we decided to pull out the, the good old VCR tape. You know, the, can you believe the VCR? Uh, the big old VCR tape and uh, to watch our wedding ceremony. We sat down and, and watched it. And I remember thinking, I don't remember that taking place. I don't remember who sang. I, I forgot all about that. You know, that was said. And oh man, that guy was in my wedding. Like that was only five years later. But like it was, there was so much to that wedding ceremony that I, I didn't remember. And I think that's really sad of me, but uh, that's just the reality. As the pastor was going through the vows, though, to, uh, to which I said, I do, uh, it kind of hit me that although, although I hadn't spoken those words again in the past five years, you know, those words, those vows were really the glue that held our relationship together. You know, because every marriage has its ups and downs. So for those of you in here who are not married yet, I'm going to tell you something. There's absolutely nothing better than being married to the person you love. Uh, Van, I see you shaking your head up and down. Uh, I got to spend some time with, with Van this past week, and he uh, told me about his dear wife of, uh, did you say 42 years? 52 years of marriage, and uh, just the past year that she's been gone, um, just the, the aching and longing and loneliness of his heart that he's experienced. And uh, thank you for sharing with me though, Van. But hey, every marriage is going to have ups and downs, but there's nothing better than knowing that that one person in the world that you give yourself to fully is, is fully giving yourself, is fully giving of themselves to you. It's awesome, but it's, it's not easy. And in the midst of wonderful years of marriage, every marriage is going to face seasons of struggle. But the vows that you make, the vows that the two of you make together, it, those are what hold you together, even if it seems that sometimes those hearts have drifted apart. You know, there's, there's people who will, who will sometimes say, well, I don't need a piece of paper, meaning a wedding license. I don't need a piece of paper to, to love somebody. And that is very true. You don't need a piece of paper to love somebody. But here's what the piece of paper tells you. Here's what the wedding license does. It tells everybody else that you have made a commitment to one person that you're not going to back out on that commitment. 
See, I, I think many people who want marriage, who want the benefits of a loving relationship without the commitment of marriage, what they really want are all the good parts, but with the exit plan in place if things ever do get bad enough. Because I never made that commitment. These vows were made at our wedding. I want to read you what the, what the pastor read and asked me to, to do. He said, Brian, do you take this woman to be your wedded wife? Will you love her, honor, and keep her in sickness as in health, in poverty as in wealth, and forsaking all others? Keep yourself only under her so long as you both shall live. And I said, I do. And then he asked me to repeat these vows. And, and as I repeat these vows to you, I want you to, I want you to think with this question in mind, is that a covenant or is that a commandment? Am I, am, I am I declaring a covenant or am I making a commandment? I, I had to repeat, I, Brian Hassey, take you, Jamie Burkowski, to be my wedded wife. I promise that I will care for you. I will love you. I will keep you in sickness as in health, in poverty as in wealth, and forsaking all others, I'll keep myself only unto you. Now, does that sound like a command? Or does that sound more like a covenant vow? Well, I hope, I hope you would say, well, Brian, that, that doesn't sound like a command at all. It sounds like a covenant vow. Okay, but can I then take that covenant vow and ask you, is my wife, would she be out of line if she looked at me and said, Brian, you shall have no other women in your life above me? Now, that's a command, isn't it? You shall have no other women in your life above me. It's a command, right? But it's a command that comes out of the covenant that I made when I said, I will forsake all others and keep myself only unto you. Would I have every right to look at her one day when she's upset and ready to walk out the door and say, no, you have to stay here. You shall stay here whether I provide everything you want or not because you made a vow that said in poverty or in wealth. You see, the commands that, that hold us together are actually bound in a covenant that is made. And that's key to understand as we enter into Exodus chapter 20, because Exodus chapter 20 to most people is known as the Ten Commandments. But if you were with us last week, you saw that we walked through a Jewish Wedding And all that took place in Exodus chapter 19 was pre preparation for a covenant vow of marriage between Yahweh God and his people Israel. And they were making a covenant together that would result in a group of commands on how to live out that covenant. In fact, this is the spot that all of the prophets throughout the rest of the Old Testament, if you read them, they are going to call Israel back to this covenant here. Hey, come back to the groom whom you declared your love to as Israel continued to play the rebellious bride. So we're going to read through the first 17 verses of Exodus chapter 20, which contain the Ten Commandments. As we go along, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pause after each one, and I'm going to show you how this command fits into a wedding covenant 
together. So join me in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 1. It says this, And God spake all these words, saying, I am Yahweh, the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right here, what, what Yahweh is saying is, I am your husband. Do not have any other lovers. Verse 4 says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And right here, Yahweh is saying, I don't want you just not to have any other lovers. I don't want you to have pictures of other lovers. And he goes on and says this in verse 5, and this is connected. Verses 5 and 6 are still connected. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Verse number seven says, you shall not take the name of the Lord Yahweh, your God in vain, for the Lord Yahweh will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. If you remember last week, we said these vows, the groom is showing his values and his character and asking the bride, make mine, my values yours. Basically, what Yahweh is saying is, you're taking my name, and as you take my name, make my values and my character yours. Live out what's important to me, not just what's important to you. Verse 8, a little bit longer. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh, the Lord your God. On it you shall, do not, you shall not do any work you or your son or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You know what the Sabbath day is all about? Hey, hey take some time off work and come be with me. Like, ladies, how do you feel if your husband is always working? Man, how would you feel if your wife never made time to just be with you? The Sabbath day is a whole lot more than just saying, I'm going to just rest. I'm just going to lay here and do nothing. No, it's about being with someone you love. It's date night or date day. Verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord Yahweh your God is giving you. And he's saying, I've given you a gift and a mom and a dad. Please respect what I've provided for you because I chose it for you. We've all received gifts that maybe, uh, maybe we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves from our spouse. But you know why they're important? Because they're from someone who loves us. That gift is from someone who cares about me. Verse 13, you shall not murder, basically saying, don't kill me in my sleep because you don't like something I did, right? <laughs> Just like, don't, don't kill me. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. He's saying, protect our relationship, but not only our relationship, protect the relationship of others. Give them a marriage covenant to live out. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Don't take what another husband has provided for his wife. I, as a, 
Yahweh as your husband have provided for you and I have provided for them and don't take something from them that I've given to them. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Be truthful about my wife, Yahweh would say, because everyone I'm married to is my wife. Don't lie about my wife. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor. And Yahweh is saying, be satisfied with the life the two of us have made. It doesn't matter how big your house is. I'm going to tell you something. Someone's got a bigger one. It doesn't matter how new the car is. As soon as you drive it off the lot, there's going to be a newer one. Be satisfied with what you have. Like when, we, when we bring this marriage covenant into the commandments, it completely changes how we see this rather than looking at the commandments as weights or burdens that we have to complete. Man, we can connect these commands to this covenant and realize what God, what Yahweh is trying to do is he's trying to protect our relationship by giving us boundaries, commandments that care for the covenant. I've said for the last two weeks, and if if today's your first day, forgive me, but I said for the last two weeks, we cannot approach these scriptures with a Western 21st century view. Because these were written by Jewish authors to Jewish people in a Jewish context. So we have to bring that into everything that we're reading. So I want to bring that into the discussion about the Ten Commandments. You may know this, you may not, but there's actually a pretty big debate among scholars about how to divide the Ten Commandments. If you grew up in a Protestant, mainline Protestant church, you basically see the, the, the first command as have no other gods before me, the second command as you shall make no graven image. If you grew up in a Catholic or Lutheran church, you probably know that the first, those first two commands are given as one. You shall have no other gods before me and make no graven images like those gods that you would put before me. Which is why if you go into a Catholic church or a Lutheran church, you'll see statues of Jesus. Because they don't see something wrong with making a statue of Jesus. They see something wrong with making a statue of a different God, of someone that they are putting in place of God. But there's actually a third understanding of how to divide the Ten Commandments. And that third understanding is is the Jewish understanding. And it it goes back to how the Jews refer to Exodus chapter 20. They don't call it the Ten Commandments commandments because the Hebrew scriptures never use the words 10 commandments. It's called 10 words. If you look back at chapter 20, verse number one, it says, and God spake all these words. And so the the Jews would look at what God is saying, not as 10 commands, not that thou, we, we immediately go to the thou shalt and thou shalt not. They're looking at what did God say. And so the, the first command for a Jew, the first word is simply this. I am Yahweh, the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The first word to the Hebrews was, 
who God is and what God has done for you. And because of who he is as Yahweh your God, and because he has delivered you, you shall have no other gods before me. See, the foundation of this first commandment, and actually the foundation of every commandment, is the covenant. If you were to keep reading, you'd find 600 different laws in the first five books of your Bible in the, what's called the Torah. And every one of those laws is meant to reveal the character and the values of, of Yahweh to a group of people who did not know him. And it was telling his covenant people, this is how to live. If you know the story of Israel in the land of Egypt, they, did, they had a multiplicity of gods around them. And it wasn't until this man named Moses showed up after meeting God at a burning bush and said, hey, let me tell you who our God is. His name is Yahweh. And Yahweh began to reveal himself to the nation of Israel through the plagues, through the passing of the Red Sea. And now as they stand at the mountain, he's going to reveal himself through the words that he's going to share. And one of the purposes of these words that he's going to share is to provide separation. It's actually like a spiritual protection from the wickedness of the nations where his people are about to go to. They worshiped other gods who are not a part of the covenant between Yahweh and Israel. In fact, when we get to Deuteronomy in a couple weeks, you'll see that, that God gave them a command. And it's really hard sometimes to listen to this command when God says, I want you to go and completely destroy, completely annihilate the people. Like that's hard to read, hard to grasp and understand. But here's what we have to understand is that in these days, people were transformed from the outside in. The influences around the people began to change the hearts of the people. That's why God said, don't intermarry with them. Keep your distance from them. Don't make treaties with them. Tear down their idols. Tear down their groves. I don't want it to be around you because if it's around you, it will eventually come within you. And that's exactly what we saw take place in the nation of Israel if you were to continue to read your Old Testament. But the coming of Jesus changed everything. Actually, it was the, the leaving, the ascension of Jesus that changed everything. After Jesus came and lived out a perfectly faithful life, was placed on the cross and then into the ground and then rose from the dead, he, he went back and ascended to heaven. And guess what he told his disciples he would do when he sat down on the throne next to his father. He said, I will send you, I will send you the comforter. I will send you the Holy Spirit. And now, now we live in a world where we can still be influenced from the outside in if we're not careful. But we as believers should be so alive to the Holy Spirit that we're changed from the inside out. And we can dwell in a very worldly place and still be true to our one covenant God. See, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within us and to transform us from the inside 
out. That's why today we're not told to go out and kill the people who don't worship Yahweh. Because everything's changed. The influence comes from the Holy Spirit within rather than the world without. But the presence of the Holy Spirit coming does not cheapen the 10 words that we read in Exodus chapter number 20. See, the Holy Spirit comes in and he's able to help us see how in Exodus 20, we're not just looking at what we have to do, we're looking at who we do it for. And that changes everything. Hey guys, if my wife handed you a honey-do list, how would you feel? Come over to my house and here's 15 things to get done in the next week. You'd look at my wife and be like, like who are you? What are you, what are you telling me to come to your house and do stuff for? But when my wife hands me a list to do things, I don't look at her and say, who are you? What are you telling me to do this for? I look at the hand who's giving me the list and say, I love that person. I will do what she asks me to do. And so today, our calling as believers is not retreat from the world. Our calling is to go to the world. Yeah, we go to the world with the calling of making disciples. But we have a big problem. And I am going to spend a little bit of time today getting in your business. Is that okay? Can I do that? Can I, can, I get in, can I get in your business a little bit without you being real upset at me? Okay. Okay. Because the problem today is that we're sending our kids into the world without an understanding of who they are and whose they are. Now, I'm sure some of you in here work in the public school system, and I am not standing here to bash the public school system. I'm not. Or you, please, no. But the system is corrupt. I think that many Christians don't understand that when our children are sent to a public school every day, and if we're not pouring the word of God and sharing the truths of God into their lives. It's like sending them out to play NFL football without any pads. They're going to get hurt badly. They're going to be injured. Some injuries you'll see on the outside. Others are internal and you really won't see them. But the teaching of the system of this world is going to counter every one of the 10 words that we read in Exodus chapter 20. Because as the first covenant says, I am Yahweh, have no other gods, the system of the world says, be your own God and do whatever you want to do. Make no graven images. Hey, worship anything your heart desires, just follow your heart. Do not take my name in vain. Hey, you know what? Live for your own values and don't let anyone else determine how you need to live. Honor the Sabbath, Yahweh says. The value system of the world says, YOLO, you only live once, so, uh, so live hard and die hard and the one with the most toys wins. Honor your parents. You know, what this, you know what the value system of our public schools is saying today? 
Hide everything from your parents. In fact, we'll help you change your gender and not even tell your parents. Do not murder. The value system of the world has gone so far that they say don't hurt anybody, even with the truth. Don't commit adultery. Why get married? Just live together. Try it out. You can have all the fun with no commitment. Do not steal. Hey, listen, if you call it protesting, you can loot and steal and do anything you want to and nothing will happen. Do not bear false witness. Hey, do whatever you need to do to protect your reputation. And you know what? If you got to harm the reputation of others, you go ahead and do it. Do not covet. Hey, listen, if you really want to fit in, you need to be like them. Ten words from our creator and the ten values systems that our public schools are built on are completely contrary. Dragging your children to church for one hour a week, thinking this one hour is going to change the 80 hours a week that they are infiltrated with the teaching, with the social media influences, with the movies that they're watching, with with anything and everything that the media is putting out. If you are not pouring the word of God into them, if you are not teaching them the truth, they are going to suffer. If your children do not have a strong foundation of biblical knowledge to stand up to the lies that are being thrown at them every day, here's what you're doing. You're dropping them off in a location that they don't know where they are and saying, here's a compass. Find your way home. The compass will never lie. The compass will point to true north. The compass will reveal exactly where they are, but if you don't know how to use a compass, you're going to stay lost forever. I was in eighth grade. They did one of those boys' camping trips, and they thought it would be hilarious to drop off three groups of boys, five boys in each group, with a compass to say, first one back wins. All three groups got so lost. It was nighttime before they found my group. Now, did we have the truth with us? So for sure, man, we had a compass. But what I was saying, go this way. Another guy was saying, go that way. And so we tried my way and that didn't work. So we tried his way and that didn't work. We had no idea where we were. Jesus is truth. The spirit of God is is truth. But if we don't know how to use the word and listen to the spirit, we're still going to be lost. And it's not just what's being taught in public schools. It's what is being caught in some Christian homes. Not necessarily by the words that we say, but by the actions that we do. It's like like we're trying to teach our children the value of their relationship with their creator by showing up for the gathering to worship that creator whenever it's convenient. We're teaching our children about the rest that Jesus offers by living such busy lives, never slowing down to just enjoy the gifts of one another that God has given to us. 
You know how it is. Athletics will go from one season to another. And if you don't intentionally say as a family, you know what, we're going to take a season of just being together, you never will. What are we teaching our children about covetousness? If we rarely give towards kingdom work because we're always wanting to build our own kingdom at home. Now, I've mentioned a, a few, maybe last week or the week before, a little bit of the gospel journey that our family has been on. And, and it's, it's taken us to places that we never would have expected. But I, I tell you, following Jesus has just been so, it's been so rewarding. And you wouldn't know this because we're new to each other, but my wife and I, we spent our entire lives growing up in a Christian school. And when our kids were old enough, we never discussed whether or not our kids would go to a Christian school or public school. It was just, it was, this is what we're going to do. They're going to go to a, a Christian school, whatever sacrifices were, were necessary. And not that a Christian school is the answer, but at least I knew sending them to a Christian school, they weren't going to hear things contrary to what we were teaching at home. But as I began to grow in my understanding of the gospel, I was compelled by the call of the go with the gospel. And the Lord began working, as our family began growing in him, the Lord began working in my heart, asking me the question, was I making choices for our family because I was fearful of the world or because I had faith in him? And the answer was easy. I was scared of what the world might do to my children. But I began praying, saying, Lord, I want faith to be what moves me, not fear. Show me what that looks like. Jamie and I began praying about our children, and, and we had reached a point where we realized, you know, these children are given to us, but they're not ours, they're his. And how can our, how can our family be used for the glory of God in a greater way? What, Lord, what does that look like? And, and we reached a point, Jamie and I did, uh, where, where we were asking the Lord to give us opportunities with our family, with our children, for his glory. And as my son Trevor, which some of you met, he was here once, my son Trevor was entering his senior year. It was 2019-2020. He graduated with no graduation because it was COVID year. But as Trevor was entering his senior year in, our, in the Christian school, two guys in his class uh, got in some serious trouble right before school got started and were not allowed to come back that first semester, which which would have left Trevor as the only kid in his senior class. And I knew my son well enough to say this would not be healthy for him to just be all by himself. This is not a good thing. And, and, and in what way is that for the glory of God? How? how? And so Jamie and I made the decision to place our, our son Trevor into the local public school that year as a senior in high school. And we were scared. Honestly, we were scared because we had, all we had ever known was Christian school up until that time. And Trevor went, and I would ask him every day, like, did you hear anything that goes against what, what we're teaching you? Like, what, what's going on? And yeah, I've never been in a public school, so I don't know what's going on in there, right? He joined the football team, and 
Never played football before, but joined the football team and immediately, it wasn't a huge school, but immediately was able to earn a starting position and, and the coach was really impressed with him to the time where I, we met in a hallway once and the, the coach found out I was, I was Trevor's dad and, and he's like, oh wow, man, your son is so impressed, man, he's, he's respectful, he works hard, he helps me clean up after practice, man, what a good kid and, I, and that allowed an open door for me to say, hey, coach, do you think I could come be part of the FCA, the, the, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes? Could I become a part of that with your football team? And he's like, man, I'd love that. So I began to, to go every uh, Thursday to practice and pray with the guys and talk to the guys. And then I would stand on the sideline with them during their game. And I'd be in the locker room with them before and after the game and would pray with them, made, made great, great connections with the guys and with the coach. And the football coach told the basketball coach what a, what a blessing it was. And so he reached out to me and said, hey, will you do for the basketball team what you did for the football team? And I'm like, you mean pray and talk to these guys about Jesus? Yep, for sure. And so I would go, and Trevor was on the basketball team. I'd go sit with them, and I'd, I'd do practice with them. And, 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 man, immediately began to see these really cool gospel opportunities. And I was thanking the Lord to say, this is what we were envisioning. But when Trevor went to school, we still had Trinity, who was a freshman. And Jamie and I thought, you know what, I, I don't know that Trinity's, well, I should, maybe Trinity was ready, but I would say maybe we weren't ready for Trinity. So we left her in the Christian school that ninth grade year, but we began, began praying very much about what to do with our children and how our children can be used for the glory of God in a world that says, go with the gospel. So by the time she started her sophomore year, we were convinced that this is what God wanted us to do. And again, she's my youngest, but she's my daughter. She's my baby girl, and I love her, and I was, I was concerned, like, what's going to happen? And she went, and again, I'm saying that because we weren't familiar with a public school, so I'm not trying to bash in any way. I'm just telling you our familiarity was, uh, was very low. And so, you know, we're asking questions. You know, I know that she suffered through some seasons of, of hurt because, you know, when you you go somewhere and you're the, son, you're the daughter of a pastor, well, who wants to be your friend? I can't say what I want to say. I can't do what I want to do when, when you're around. And I know that there was a distance that she felt in, in many places. My wife, of course, walked alongside her regularly, but I kept waiting for these gospel opportunities to pop up in Trinity's schooling like we had so clearly seen quickly in, in Trevor's and we didn't see it. We were criticized by many. I should say by some. We were criticized by some for our, for our decision. Because I was the pastor of a church that ran a Christian school. And I was sending my children to a public school. And my only answer is, I don't answer to you for how I raise my children. I answer to him. And if this is what he's asking me to do, it's what we're going to do. We're going to follow the king. But it was tough to face those criticisms. It was, it was a struggle. The month before we left Virginia to come here to Plymouth, I got to baptize Trevor's basketball coach. And his family joined the church. Two weeks before we left Virginia to come here to Plymouth, I got to baptize one of Trinity's teachers, who Trinity 
had a huge influence on and developed a very close relationship. Close enough where when this teacher's husband found out he had liver cancer, she asked Trinity to pray for him. And when he was taken to the ICU at the University of Virginia Hospital for his liver cancer progressing, she actually texted me and asked if I would come and pray with her husband at the hospital. And I did. I went and I spent almost two hours with him. And for about 45 minutes, we got to talk about the gospel. And I asked him, his name was Chuck, and I said, hey, Chuck, if, if God were to meet you outside the gates of heaven and ask you, Chuck, why should I let you into my kingdom? What would you say? And he looked at me with all sincerity and he said, I have no idea, but I hope you're going to tell me what I need to know. And about 45 minutes later, I was able to lead Chuck, point Chuck to Jesus and witness him coming to Christ. And Chuck died about six weeks later. And this teacher of Trinity's, her name is Melissa. Melissa has been a part, was a part of the church. She really became a part of our family through that. Melissa is responsible in, in a huge way for Trinity being able to follow God in the calling to attend Grace College. And then the day before we left Virginia, the day before we left Virginia to come to Plymouth, Trinity's best friend in high school, her name is Martina. Martina was over at our house and she and Trinity became good friends in I think Trinity's junior year of high school and she wrote a card to Jamie and I, and in that card told her, she told us how much that she would miss us and that she was so thankful for us, and she said, and I just want you to know, because of Trinity's influence, I gave my heart to Jesus. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world but you need to know who's in you. And I just want to really encourage you moms and dads. I don't care if you send your kids to a public school or to a Christian school. You, as the parents, are the caregivers, the main teachers of your children in all areas. You point them to Jesus so they know who is in them. Because when you know who is in you, these commands take on a little bit of a different feel. When, these, when, you, when, these com when you know who is in you, these commands are more than just, this is what I must do. But these commands now reveal who you will be one day because Christ is in you. Because if you were to use the words in Christ in front of every command, you will see the future reality awaiting every believer. Because in Christ, you will have no other God above you. In Christ, you will make no graven images. In Christ, you will never take his name in vain. In Christ, you will keep the Sabbath day. And in Christ, all those commands that you read, those will be realities because that's who Jesus was. He was the fulfillment of every one of these commands. And the reason he kept the commands 
Let me read you John 14, 30. Do as the, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Huh, did you hear that? Do I do as the Father commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. We keep the commandments not because we have to, not because we're looking for a way to heaven. We keep the commandments so the world around us know that we love the God who gave his Son to bring salvation and redemption to us. And when we do that, we know what our future reality is in Christ. I will be a commandment-keeping, faithful, covenant member of the family. And that's good news. So what do you do with it? Focus on the covenant and see the commands as protecting that relationship. Focus on the covenant not what you have to do. Focus on what has been done for you and see it protecting the relationship. Number two, celebrate whose you are and let that reality shape who you are. Jesus has rescued me. You know what that means? I am a prisoner who has found freedom. Hey, if you've ever been in prison and you walk out of prison, you're pretty thankful that you're anywhere. Ha! You and I are spiritual prisoners who have been set free by the goodness of Jesus. Why do we look like we're so unhappy? We're prisoners who have been set free. We're children who were homeless, but were brought, excuse me, but were brought to the table to sit with the king of kings. Like, we had nothing, and now we have everything. How do we not find celebration in that? Ah, oh, celebrate whose you are and let that identity shape who you are. And last, allow your steps to be determined by your Faith in the king, not your fear of the world. Yes, we must be careful about the influences that surround our families. But more than that, we need to be sharing boldly who lives within our families. Please don't just tell your children what they shouldn't do. Teach them who they should follow. If they follow the king, we're not really worried about this. We tend to focus here. Let's focus there. Father, we thank you for your word and for your goodness.